<laughs> you go ahead. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure what you were asking me. Yeah. You, you were like making. I didn't want to start talking at the same exact time as you. All right, <laughs> we'll try this again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, this is Andrew Burleson. I'm here with Chuck Marone, and uh, we're doing uh, something we do uh, every once in a while, where we sort of turn the tables. And uh, for this particular episode, I'm going to play the role of the uh, host and interviewer. The Inquisitor. The Inquisitor. <laughs> and uh, Chuck is going to be the victim, uh, <clears throat> guest, uh, on, the, on the show. Um, so I'm excited. So we're here at CNU 23, having a good time. Chuck, how are you uh, enjoying the conference so far? You know, it's, it's, it's really fun. It, it's, it's a lot of work, though, now. <laughs> yeah? I mean, I remember the good old days. When, before you were a celebrity? No, before, bef- well, before anybody knew me. Uh, yeah, that, that was, and I could just, <laughs> like, it, the first couple of years for me was hanging out all by myself mm. and just learning. And then it became, you know, I had this circle of friends, you, Jim, uh, uh, other people that I, I would get so much from. And the thing that I feel like I'm missing now is I'm, 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 I'm missing out on some of those things. There have been a couple lunches that I've been able to do. But uh, man, we've been we've been smoking it. We've been really really busy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I don't. There's a part of me that says maybe next year I'll just take one day for me, right? Like not schedule anything. But then it's like, why? What's the point, right? Yeah, you'd also have a hard time. You'd have to you, to take a day for you. You'd need to like you know wear sunglasses and yeah, no, <laughs> maybe it's a hat, not... <laughs> a wig. <laughs> well, I did. I was able to make a session yesterday, which was cool. Yeah, uh, great. I went to the the. The Jarrett Walker session, the transit one, um, is a topic I need, you know, more on and his, uh, who's, who better to listen to. So that was cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. How about for you? I mean, I remember thing last night was incredible, wasn't it? It was incredible. Yeah. We had a great turnout. We had, uh, I think it was more than 60 people. Every time Jim says we're going to do something like this, my gut reaction is, oh, come on. You know, we'll, we'll do this and like five people will show up and, and, you know, it's this huge time commitment and all this work for Jim, not for me. Mm-hmm. I just show up, and uh, and every time we do something like this, I show up and there's ten times the people that I ever imagined, and they're really excited and they're so like thankful, uh, you know, to to be able to chat. And I, I was thinking like, well, I'll, I'll be there till eight, and then I was, <laughs> was there till nine thirty, just talking to everybody. So it was really cool. Yeah, and we got the late night tonight. Yeah, the late, late show tonight. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun. Um, hopefully. Yeah? Yeah, you know. <laughs> There's kind of a risk that you take when you agree to do something like that, that you just, like, suck at it. I realized last year that my margin for... Er- it, it, <laughs> after the first... Because, understand, those of you that aren't here, I, 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 I was asked last year to do this, like, talk show, this late-night talk show. And the idea is I'm going to give up, get up and do some jokes, right? And I'm, I'm not, I'm an engineer. I'm not like naturally, uh, funny. The thing is, is that by that time of the evening, everybody is pretty like, they've been imbibing a a long time. (laughs) Chuck is being nice. Everyone will be drunk. Everyone will be. And (laughs) they're also in a mood to be very generous. Like, Uh, you know, like you can get up. It's a very friendly crowd. I told some clunkers last year and the place erupted in laughter. Mm -hmm. So after like two jokes last year, I'm like, okay, those were the two I was worried about. The rest is going to be fine. This is going to go easy. So it'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to uh, pick your brain on a, a, a series of questions today. 
okay. uh, that explore something I think we get, we get asked a lot about and we, we sort of think a lot about, but we don't talk as much about uh, or write as much about um, proportionally. And, and that is sort of the after the curbside chat and some, yeah. some scenarios sort of looking forward. When I go back to my hotel room and write you flaming emails. No, well, yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but, uh, I really mean, uh, I really mean in the life of cities. We're talking about strong towns. Yeah. So when we visit a town, we typically, uh, give them the sort of bad news and then see ya. Right. And, uh, you know, it's actually kind of miserable for us because we we want to do more and stay more involved, but it takes it takes a lot of time, and we right. we can only be one place at a time. So, so you know your your travel circuit, uh, you cover a lot of ground every year, but you don't get to really stick around. Yeah. And so we try and keep in touch with places afterwards, and it just depends on who's there and what they're doing, whether or not we really know what happens next. But but I want to try and uh, get you to imagine imagine some scenarios and. Uh, we're gonna just imagine that instead of doing the the sort of speaking tour, yeah, uh, that you were gonna sort of pick a spot and camp out, and we were gonna hang around and try and uh, uh, work on some problems in more depth and think about what what kind of things we might do. Yeah. So to to play this out, I want to first first I'm gonna try and ask you questions that might be a little uncomfortable or have hard answers. Okay. But uh, to give you a little cover, we're gonna talk about the city of Springfield, Kansas, as our oh, example. Okay. So right. this doesn't actually exist. It's not in there, there isn't one. There's 32 other Springfields so in I the can, United States. I can imagine it. But not Kansas, right? So we're going to say that Springfield, Kansas is a, is a town that has, I'd say, about 14,000 people yeah. uh, <laughs> in, its, in, in its city limits. Similar to... And maybe, yeah. maybe about 50 in the surrounding county. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm going to take the... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say it doesn't have a strong seasonal fluctuation in, in population. It's, okay. it's more in the middle, middle America kind okay. of... You know, agricultural, good Midwestern. Yeah, good Midwestern, yeah. typical, right. typical, typical town. We're yeah. just trying not and, too far east, not too far west. Yeah, very, yeah. very middle, and, right. and very, very calm, very, very, very average. Right. So, given that, uh, I want to first uh, get you to do some some uh, triage from afar. First of all, so, I hate this place already. I'm gonna yeah, <laughs> it's obviously horrible. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Yeah. So, uh, so the the first thing is. When you hear of, of a town like that, yeah. and we, we travel all over and you see these every day, uh, without having any data yet, uh, the first question that the people of Springfield are going to ask you is, you know, like, well, what, be a little, let's be a little more detailed. We're going to start hunting for, uh, s- sort of, uh, uh, data or knowledge of like how deeply in trouble we are, uh, Right. Where do we start looking? And so what I'd love for you to start with is just kind of, you know, if you're talking about an average town in the country that, that they've had a, a relatively typical level of maintenance activity and deferred maintenance activity, what is the situation they're probably in in terms yeah. of their systems? Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting because, I, I you know, if if I'm encamping in this place, like if I'm moving there... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I will be leaving my home, right? So I'm moving to this place. I'm well, gonna, you can imagine it's a long-term consulting engagement if you want. Okay, like, but I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that there because part of part of what we do at Strong Towns and part of the reason to get the data and get the information mm-hmm. is to change the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Right. If I'm gonna if if I am gonna relocate to a place today, it's gonna be a place that has some momentum in a different conversation. But let's assume that this place 
is in those early phases of trying to change the conversation. Um, I mean, the, 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 for me, the first thing is just look around you. You know, uh, if your main street is dead, if your buildings are boarded up, if your second, third stories are unoccupied, if your neighborhood's sidewalks are falling apart or non-existent, you can, without any technical expertise, get a really, like, immediate sense of the trajectory of this city. If you want to start digging in technically then, uh, you know, one of the things that I talked about a decade, 15 years ago, back with Community Growth Institute, before Strong Towns was ever even a, a starting blog, right? Uh, we need to do an, an audit. And we can do a, a back-of-the-envelope audit, right? How many miles of street do you have? Well, we've got 13 mi- 13.23 miles of street, right? Well, how much does it cost you on an annual basis to seal cracks and how often do you have to do that and how often do you have to chip seal and how often do you have to uh, go out and do a big maintenance project and what's the cost per foot of that? And we can get literally in five minutes sitting down with an engineer who has, we can get a sense of here's your total Here's your, here's your total bill for just for the streets. And those are, you know, 20, 25 year investments. Some very simple math can tell you here's how much you should be spending every year on that. I guarantee you, your city is spending 10% of that, 20% of that. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, you're not even making the base investments to maintain your stuff. The next question then is not one of, I think in terms of getting information out to people, it's more along the lines of, all right, if we were going to maintain everything, what would that then actually mean, right? Uh, and so if you're only paying 10% of what you would need to pay, what is that other 90% number? And then you can go around and do that in all the different systems that you have. Uh, we can do this with the pipes. We can do this with the sidewalks. We can do this with the, the curb. And, you know, if you dedicated four hours to this, you would get a rough estimate, you know, let's say you're 20% off, you would still get a rough estimate of where you're at. The thing about a rough estimate, it, 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 in, in the case of what we're talking about here, your, your margin for error with a good estimate in terms of like what's the inflation rate going to be for construction materials, what's the interest rate going to be over the next 50 years. But all of these variables come into play and, and make getting more precise than that kind of ridiculous anyway. Mm. So get, get, get a rough estimate. Yeah. The thing that the rough estimate is going to tell you is you're way off. You're not, even, you're not even in the ballpark close, right? You're not even... And... and, and not only that, in almost every city in this country, there's no discernible way through tax increases or spending cuts or, you know, changes in fee structures or what have you, there's no discernible way to get to solvency. And so what you're trying to do through this conversation of pulling the data and running is to actually get to a point where you can start to talk about, all right, if we don't have the money to continue to do what we're doing, what do we do differently? Right. Because that, that, this whole curbside chat is designed to get you to that, right? right. So, yeah, exactly. So, so this is, uh, that's like a perfect introduction. I'm, so I want us to, to dig into this more. Uh, so we're just going to say Springfield is very typical, a very typical American city. So we know right off the bat is 
it's likely that they're spending about 10 to 20 percent of what they need to be spending to maintain what they've got. Uh, there's therefore no clear path for them to raise the additional money to, to dedicate the full funds required. So let's, let's make that just a little bit more tangible in, in terms of they've, they've heard this, they've seen the numbers. Now, uh, can you make a couple guesses for me in terms of where they're probably at in terms of, you know, remaining useful life of the stuff that they've got? Uh, oh. what, what condition, if you're just to say, like, is, is typical, you know, what state are there probably the streets and pipes and, and so on and so forth in right now? If we're at, like, a very typical city, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking like a, a generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking... You know, if you're not already experiencing it, which they, they probably are, mm-hmm. experiencing places that are seeing failure. And by failure, I mean neighborhoods that were new within people's lifetimes that are around today are, are failing now. Places being boarded up, streets not being maintained. But you, I mean, the clock is ticking on the stuff that you're going to see, the stuff above ground. I mean, you're on a, you're on a 25-year life cycle. And, and the thing is, is when you don't maintain this stuff, it goes bad all the more quickly. Mm-hmm. The first thing people do is say, well, we're going to put off the cracks, you know, the, 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 like the cheap maintenance stuff that can extend something from 15 years to 30 years. Mm-hmm. They don't do that. So you wind up having it fail even more quickly. So you, you're looking at a situation where you're probably already seeing signs of decline that are un, you know unavoidable you're ex, you're explaining them away with some you know oh those are those people or you know that, that's you know some other some other excuse someone screwed up someone's an idiot someone did this the city's incompetent yeah. ways, you know there's some excuse but after a, a certain period of time and to me it's going to be for a sit, for the typical city you know within the next 5 to 10 years you're going to see widespread uh, decline that is not explainable by those kind of reasons, right? Um, you're also going to see, at the same time, uh, the the more affluent people among you choose to move. Um, th- this is something that I've become aw- aware of over the last year. And really, the, the Ferguson conversation kind of crystallized this in my mind. Uh, because I've, I've, I've looked back at neighborhoods in the 1940s and what happened to them. And there's a certain point where the people who could left mm-hmm. and they didn't leave. You know, we, we disparagingly call it white flight. And I, I get that from a socio-demographic standpoint, that's what it was. But it wasn't white people saying, I don't want to live here with black people. It was people of affluence saying, I could get a better deal for my money somewhere else. Because the government's just built a highway, they're subsidizing my home, I get a, you know, there's all these reasons why. And they made logical decisions in the marketplace to say, I'm not going to be here, I'm going to go there because my house here is the is declining in value or not appreciating and the one out there will. Those are, those are logical investment decisions. Mm-hmm. And as neighborhoods in this typical town start to go into decline, that strata of people who can move will move. Yeah. Uh, and they'll move on to greener pastures. They'll move on to what essentially in a in a investment place that's a better investment, and that will uh, of course accelerate the decline. So we've established now that if Springfield is a typical town, uh, they probably are five to ten years 
left on the clock before things start to really get bad. Uh, they're probably already seeing early failure. But, you know, if you think of it as they've, they've got a 25-year lifespan on most of their infrastructure, you know, elements, some pieces are newer than others, so some pieces have got more, now, you know. Can I put a small caveat on sure, that? Sure, sure. And I, I, I'm, I'm hypersensitive to the notion that we don't know what the future brings, right? Mm-hmm. If, you would, if, if, if you would have asked me back in 2008, you know, where we would be in 2015, I would have said probably the same thing I'm saying now, sure. right? I never dreamed, I never dreamed in my wildest mind that we would print $5 trillion, that we would give, <laughs> you know, banks around the world trillions and trillions of dollars, that we would be willing to take on, uh, as, as a private sector individuals, Trillions of dollars more debt, even though we're already like loaded up. I, I never foresaw that we would be so desperate to rescue this that we would do that. Sure. So to me, I, I'm part of my assumption is that at some point our either willingness to continue to, to do that or our ability to do that is going to be impaired. Speaking though, as like putting on the quarter, the, the armchair quarterback economist hat. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if that's a valid assumption because we've proven time and time and time again, whether it was, uh, you know, devaluation in the seventies, taking on uh, huge amounts of debt in the eighties, uh, you know, jerry rigging the financial system to kind of keep this thing floating in the nineties, the housing whole boom and dot com crazy boom. And, and now this whole, qu- we are very innovative in finding ways to avoid confronting the insolvency we've created yeah i think the law of the 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 law of just time says at some point we're going to have to confront it and when we do we're we're certainly making it bigger and more difficult to deal with sure but when i say five to ten years i i I think the 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 typical city is not going to get rescued and i think they're going to deal with it very soon but could places you know extend the find ways to extend this out longer yeah possibly yeah sure well, yeah, we're not predicting the future. We're just trying to imagine, you know, uh, one of the possible scenarios right. that we think is is pretty realistic. I think that the city you're describing it feels a lot like my hometown, <laughs> and I'm I'm explaining, you know, from my I'm 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 kind of projecting a little bit. Like, here's what I see going on, mm-hmm. and we certainly have the outward signs of decay and decline, yeah, like omnipresent and no real viable way to to, to counteract that beyond some rescue from outside, right. Well, so let's just, let's just, you know, continue with this and, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's say, you know, we're in a position where, okay, the town of Springfield has heard this. They've done enough back of the envelope map to, math to kind of confirm the situation is, you know, what we would, what we would guess. And, uh, they're looking at their systems and they are generally about 10 years or so left before they're going to start having a majority of, infrastructure around town be in really bad shape yeah and you know there may be some ways to extend that there may not but it but in any case uh we've got you know let's just say we've got a strong mayor in town and he's basically put you on speed dial number one yeah and said like just tell me what to do chuck i'll do whatever you say like help me you know s- you know slow the bleeding or like what what can we do well so let, yeah yes yeah, so that's that's where i want to go let's okay. see well let let's 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 put on the table the fact that this what we're talking about here will not happen without some people being hurt. Right. Right. Like people have made investments in homes. They've made investments in neighborhoods. 
They've made investments based on assumptions uh, of where employment opportunities would be and schools would be and certain things. Th there's no way for us to meet all of those expectations as a, as a city government. And I'll, I'll, I'll use this parallel even though it's going to sound maybe a little crass. I bought, uh, ya I, I thought Yahoo back in 1999 was like the greatest company in the world. <laughs> I thought they had it all figured out. This is before Google, right? But Yahoo, I mean, they, they were way ahead of their time in terms of how they were approaching advertising. And I mean, this was, this was the greatest thing. And I went and bought Yahoo at $240 a share. Right? Smooth. This is a 19. Oh, and dude, I thought <laughs> I had made, I, I'd made like the greatest investment ever. Of course, Yahoo went to $7 a share. Um, that's a, that's a huge loss. <laughs> For those of you that can't do math, that's a huge loss. Now I, I only had like a thousand dollars into it, you know, it was, a kind of, it was like 22 at the time or whatever. So it's not like I poured my life savings into this, but it was a valuable lesson in the fact that I really don't know what, what the heck I'm doing. Um, but the, the, the corollary here is nobody stepped in to bail me out, right? Yeah. I made a bad investment. I thought that I was, I thought this was going to work out. I was going to get rich and things were going to be great for me. Um, I made a bad investment. Nobody bailed me out. Right. Now, when we look at houses and we look at real estate and we look at, you know, we, because we have the American mythology or, 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 or ideal that your house is, you know, your house is your castle. It's your sanctuary. It's your top investment. It's da 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 da. Um, we feel this like natural inclination to try to protect that for everybody. And I, I, I want to just put on the table to this mayor right off the bat, people made bad investments and you can't solve that. You can't fix that. Um, all you can do is minimize the amount of pain for people and then try to find a softer place for people who made bad investments to land. So how do we go about doing that? I, I think the first thing we do is we, we step back and we maybe do like a more thorough Joe Minicozzi kind of analysis and say, where are the neighborhoods that we have that are actually revenue positive? And again, I, I will say, I've said this many, many times, I, I totally disagree with the notion that cities should be run as a business because cities are not businesses. Businesses can fail, first of all, and cities can't really go out of business, right? Like you don't get taken over by the next city and they like take up, carve up your things and sell off different divisions, right? It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work that way. So the city. So that your assets are not fungible. Exactly, exactly. So, so cities ha are, cannot be run as a business, but cities can be run with business principles. Mm -hmm. If you have a, a situation where you're deeply in the red and you're functionally in, you're, completely insolvent as a business, but you have one really profitable division, mm -hmm. you don't go like do a 10% across the board cut. You, you, you know, you don't go and like gut that one division. What you do is you say, okay, these unprofitable divisions, we're going to, you know, either phase them out or, you know, stop investing in them. And we're going to put our money into the profitable division because the more profits we get from this profitable division, the more we're going to be able to do, you know, in other areas. So as a city, I look and I say, where's, where are my profitable divisions? And when we've done this analysis, big and small, we see the, the, the stuff that's the traditional development pattern, the original downtown in, in our little city here, the core walkable neighborhoods. These are places that today are still 
revenue positive, they're the profitable division. And the great thing about it is just with a tiny bit of nurturing, they can become not only the profitable division, but like the, 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 the thing that carries the whole system, right? They, mm-hmm. they, these are huge high returning investments. Now you've got this problem of, okay, we are, are taking our limited resources. We're essentially triaging and putting it where we can do the most good. To me, the next question I bring to this mayor is, okay, how do we start to create some feedback loops in these other places? Because a, a lot of them are going to go away. Uh, and, and by go away, I mean it, we walked away from neighborhoods in the 1940s. People who owned homes like sold them for really low prices and walked away and built new homes out. We're going to do the opposite now. These neighborhoods that are not viable when the streets go bad and the pipe goes bad and they're not, it's not fixed and repaired, these houses are going to be boarded up, the materials are going to be salvaged, and people are actually going to move. We're going to experience what Detroit has experienced mm-hmm. in large swaths of, of our city here. Um, how do we have a process to discern the ones that will coalesce into a something that is salvageable and the ones that will essentially go the other way and be un, uh, you know not rescuable because what you don't want to do is you don't want to pour a bunch of scarce resources into propping up places that yeah it's th- too, uh, too far gone it's too far gone right um then i think the, the third thing so so i've got these two principles already off the bat and the third principle i add then is that what we do and this is the soft landing part what we do as a city and where we, you know, the, the neighborhoods that we rescue and save or, or, or put our scarce resources into have to be ones that have total ecosystems. Um, in, in other words, there's got to be a place for everybody in these neighborhoods. There's got to be an incremental development pattern. So the, the, the term NIMBY will go away in our city because if your neighborhood's going to be one that's going to get investment, it's also going to be one that accepts incremental development by right. You know, like you can't say, no, we're not going to have that accessory apartment. No, we're not going to allow that single family home to go to a duplex. No, we're not going to allow this street full of duplexes to become two and three story, you know, apartment complexes or, or what have you. That whole thing goes away because we're getting back to the good party now, right? You've got to have that incremental development pattern. And so to me, you know, with those, the, the identify your profitable divisions, uh, talk about how we identify in the unprofitable divisions the one that the ones that could become profitable and the ones that never will, and then make sure you have the, a place for everybody. The incremental development pattern in the rest of it. Those would be kind of like the three core principles I would map out for this mayor. So let's <clears throat> let's just keep going down that road. So let's say we've identified, uh, you know, the, the historic core of the city. Uh, is let's just say there's a few blocks that are revenue positive and mostly it's pretty close to neutral and given the rest of the city is bleeding money so bad that yeah. looks pretty good yeah yeah uh <laughs> the you know let's say we've got a few older subdivisions that are kind of you know sprinkled around uh the town uh that are particularly uh not viable and and uh happen to be you know, furthest is they happen to have been the last places that you know were not repaired in the last you know maintenance cycle, whatever. So sure. they have the oldest stuff, right? Um, it's the sad thing is generally the opposite. Oh. Like your your great neighborhoods, well, sure. the neighborhoods that are actually like paying back, 
um, a lot of times we'll have some of the, the poorest people in the community will have some of the, the oldest and worst infrastructure in terms of the maintenance. And the, the new stuff where yeah, the affluent yeah. people are is the stuff that's like bleeding the most in terms of the city's budget, but it's, it's newer, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a really good point. So let's just try and imagine it. Let's, we've got uh, some neighborhood we've identified is the, the most, is the, the most bleeding neighborhood in the city. Yeah. Like you guys are not salvageable. Right. Right. Uh, now, now you, you've just challenged one of my preconceptions. Cause I've, I've picture in my head that like the most bleeding worse off subdivision is going to be one that was like built in the eighties and like was was like the worst pattern. And it's the oldest of the worst pattern. That's like, just missed like the last kick the can round of you know subsidized you know maintenance but maybe it's not maybe it's the brand new you know five year old subdivision you, is the worst can I can I throw out a theory as to why sure that is yeah please um, do because this is one of the things that we've seen as we've we've looked at like the the data and depth in different cities mm-hmm. um, a lot of times when people went and built they were pretty darn smart about where they built the place so like before nineteen forty. You would have cities with no pumps, right? Mm, yeah. So it would it, everything would be built on the high ground. Your water system would actually be like uphill, mm-hmm. so that the, you know so gravity, gravity would help you. Way. Your sewer system would actually be downhill, so that you know gravity helped you there too. And the city actually made some logical topographic sense. Since World War II, and we've this new like auto experiment, we're unconstrained financially. We're unconstrained topographically, and so we just build wherever. Mm-hmm. And so what you see, and I see this in my hometown, like huge, uh, as we go forward, there's the, the property we develop is more and more marginal. Mm-hmm. And the heroic efforts we need to take to, to not only develop it, but to maintain it are just overwhelming, right? So you will have literally, I mean, this is like harkens back to, to Rome where they built the palaces of the swamp after they drained it and then after a couple centuries uh you know forgot how to maintain this we became poor and couldn't maintain it and all the palaces were flooded we've literally built some of the the most expensive homes in terms of real estate value not value per acre or mm-hmm, yield or productivity mm-hmm. but like if you're going to go out and get a mortgage this is a huge home we built them on some of the most marginal property around uh you know a lot of these places if you think about Pumping sewage, right? Mm-hmm. In in the old parts of town, you don't have any pumps at all. If if you were in a new subdivision, you you flush a toilet and it might be pumped forty times before it gets to the the yeah. treatment plant. That that's you know that's amazing actually. That yeah. people don't. I I don't like no one knows that. No one knows that. The, no people who buy a house, they, right. It never. No one has the mental framework to to even consider the possibility right. that the location their home was built is right. like inherently massively disadvantaged right exactly it, it's not part of our no it's not part of the paradigm. knowledge base cultural no. it's not part of our cultural awareness exactly so so you have this 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 thing where like the people are paying the same like if you live in the core neighborhood yeah, where right. everything's gravity there's no signal you to you that there's you're, no signal right yeah. so to me we have to start putting that signal back in place so let's let's dig deep on this let's say we've got tell me if this fits your description so we've got a neighborhood and let's say it's 50 houses subdivision 50 houses and they're all three hundred thousand dollar houses with you know two and three car garages you know uh 
and uh, nice wide, you know, 38 foot paving sections, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe they did is built about 2005. Maybe they did some, um, uh, some bioswales, you know, yeah, yeah. uh, they have a, a, a decorative, uh, lagoon as a fountain, you know, water feature right. in the front. Yeah. And there, and the sign that says, mm-hmm. you know, Eagle Oaks, because yeah. now there's no eagles or oaks, right? <laughs> Spring, Springfield yeah. lakes. Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, so, so this, this particular subdivision is, is, you know, downhill, uh, in, in a, the, you know, a bottom, of a valley or something like that, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. Some bad location, right? Yeah. Uh, some expensive to maintain location. Right. But, okay, it was built 2005. So they, so their roads are still in okay shape. Oh, their, yeah. their pipes are not leaking yet. Yeah. Um, but it costs a ton of money to service those people. So what are we going to do with this neighborhood? Well, here's, a, it, it, it might not, it, this is the, this is the illusion of wealth thing. Mm-hmm. Today, th- these people are sitting there in a thing saying, we're paying a ton of taxes. Oh yeah, right. Uh, you know, we're, we're, and, and, and here, here's the thing. From a cash flow standpoint, at that point, the city may actually be positive. Like they may be paying more taxes than they're getting in service, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're a wealthy neighborhood. The cops maybe drive through every now and then to see if someone's speeding. You have a lot of police calls. The houses are brand new. They're not burning down. You know, fire calls. You know, you, you, you're pretty like low burn, low service area because everything's brand new and it didn't cost the city anything. And, and, you know, it's rolled into your mortgage where the, where the rubber will hit the road, where the bill will become unbearable is when that stuff needs to be fixed. Right. Because then you look at how much money they've paid in. So if the question is like, as this goes into decline, how do you, how do you go to someone with a brand new place and a brand new road and a brand new everything and say, look, um, this is now a private road. Like we're, we're going to give this dead end cul-de-sac back to you or this development with 50 homes in it. Uh, the city's not going to maintain this one. You're going to continue to pay your taxes because you still drive the arterial over here mm-hmm. and you still use the interchange and you still, you know, do all this stuff that we got to maintain. Uh, but here's your here's your road back, and if you want the the snow plowed, and if you want the ditches mowed, and if you want the asphalt fixed, that's gonna be on you guys. You know, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I. So then, is that is that the best sort of place to start? I mean, we're talking about we're talking about identifying a place where the city can look and see we are not going to be able to yeah. sustain this. Yeah. And uh, you know how do we and, and what i'm really trying to dig into is that from the point of view of the people who live there right um what are the choices you're giving them okay I, that's a that's a great question because I, I i would not do that i would not go out and say well you're all, you know goodbye I, I would give everybody a choice right here here's here's your choice in round one of mm-hmm. triage and i think uh, by the way the reason i'm the reason i'm trying to pick on this like we're trying to build up this scenario is it's a realistic and common scenario. Oh, yeah. But we're also talking about a place that has people who probably have some resources. In this particular case, people who probably have a little bit to work with and a little bit of time left on the clock. Like they're not in trouble today, right. per se. Right, uh, But it's coming. It's clearly identified. Like there's going to be a massive shortfall right. for your neighborhood that the city is not going to be able to deal with. Right. So what are we what, what, what are we talking to those people about in terms of options and Well, what strategies? I would want to do is I, I would want to make clear that the, the problem here is not that we don't like you or you're not part of our city or mm-hmm. what have you, but it's just that you we can't tax everybody else to subsidize you. So uh, a 
the, the two choices are, are this. One, we'll privatize everything you have. And you, your taxes are still going to go way up because we've got all this other stuff that you're dependent on that we're not paying for either. Um, but we'll, we'll privatize everything you have and, and you can maintain it and we're not going to get up in your business and, you know, what have you. The, the other option is more complex and it's more of a, a path. And I can't promise you that at the end of the day, we won't just give it back to you anyway if it doesn't work out. But basically, if, if you will agree to be on a path to get you to solvency, um, then we can, then, then, then we can start to have a conversation, right? So if you will, you have a neighborhood of 50 single family homes. If you will agree that you will, uh, a, a allow for the next increment of growth by right, and that you will work to encourage that in your neighborhood. So by that, I mean, let's turn those three car garages into accessory apartments and, you know, other, other living units so that we increase the, the value and the, the overall productivity of the neighborhood. If you'll agree to do that or, or you know, not fight when your neighbor does that or what have you, uh, between now and 20 years from now, when your development falls apart, let's work to try to make it like a solvent place, right? Um, because as we look over, let, let's say 20% of our land area is productive, which maybe is high for most cities. Maybe it's like 10%. Uh, but let's say in that 10 to 20% range, there's another 10 to 20% that is salvageable. Mm -hmm. In other words, if, if the growth and development and, and the people moving and, uh, and uh, relocation, all that happened in the space, it would actually become workable. Um, but the problem is, is that you have this huge area and you don't know where those are. You kind of know where they're for sure not. I mean, they're not going to be the dead end cul-de-sac way out on the edge, right? But there's some neighborhoods that could, over time, adapt and become financially viable again. Uh, you don't want to, like, kneecap those places, right? You want to nurture those. So I would, I would be saying to people in, in those kind of neighborhoods, look, if you will uh, uh, help us facilitate the next increment of development, we will make small tactical investments in your neighborhood to bring that about. So we will go out there and see where people are walking and there aren't sidewalks and we'll make investments and put sidewalks in. Uh, when we have to fix the road, we're going to narrow it. We're going to narrow down that street and make it a more walkable neighborhood. We're going to plant street trees. We're going to, we as a public will make small, modest investments in your neighborhood to try to get it to the next level. What we will be looking for in your neighborhood then is the response, right? If we make these small investments and nothing happens, that is probably not the neighborhood that's going to be saved. If we make these small investments and then the private sector starts to respond by adding additional units, making additional investments, more people moving to the neighborhood, now this is a place where we're starting to get some critical mass and maybe it can be part of that part that, uh, you know, we actually are able to salvage. So... You know, again, if we're talking about a typical town, you've probably got more neighborhoods that are sort of on this, uh, you know, tipping point or watch list. I don't know, like this, this yeah. uh, uncertain about whether or not they can be salvaged than can actually be salvaged, right? I mean, the the whole reason they're on the we're not oh, sure. Oh, list. yeah. I mean, I, I think if you if you you know if you say twenty percent is and it's it is less than that. Um, if if you say let's say let's say it's ten percent, I feel very comfortable. Ten percent is of your land area is certainly 
viable financially if you don't starve it of revenue. If you actually put the wealth that's being created there back into the place, that's your profitable division. There's maybe another 10%, 15% that could be salvageable under the same, you know, that incremental growth mm -hmm. investment scenario. That means that there's, you know, 75% that's not, it's considered contraction, right? So if you're looking at, so, so we're looking at a subdivision, you're saying after doing a careful look at what's, uh, you know, what's on the table, what does the city have, what are they working with, there's still probably a good two thirds in the, or more yeah. that uh, from right now we could say like there's no imaginable scenario that saves that piece of the town. Uh, uh, not not and have a viable town. Right. I mean, you you can you could you could rob your productive neighborhoods to fix the road for the rich people out on the edge one last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's not you know. Then your whole yeah. city implodes, and you you know it's. it's uh, we're talking about a scenario where you're actually trying to save the place, right? Yeah, right, right. We're trying, trying yeah. to save the place. So, so you're, if you live in a subdivision and you're in the two thirds that is clearly identified as not salvageable, uh, you know, let's just, that, that could be, you're just too far out, too isolated, or could be the location is too much down in the swamp, you know, and it takes too much, too much effort comparatively to the rest of the, you know, the nearby land to sort of keep that under, you know, above water, whatever the reason may be, you know, you're in one of the places that we just can't see any path that gives you a continuation option. So what are the options in that case? And what kind of conversations are we going to have with the people who live there in terms of like, what are the rational responses you can imagine they have available to sort of pick from? Well, okay. And, and, and you're, you're forcing me here to be uh, part like, Machiavellian advisor to the prince oh, as yeah. well, right? Yeah, of course. Because what? what because I, I fully. That's realize, why we're doing this on an imaginary town, <laughs> right? If seventy-five percent of your land area is not is not viable, if two thirds or what is somewhere in that range, um, that's probably the majority of your electorate as well, mm -hmm. right? So I, I fully understand that if you go out, like the mayor says, well, we're going to privatize. You know, 75% of our land area, we're just going to get right off. Here's our plan. Saved, not saved. <laughs> you know, that basically that mayor gets voted out of office because nobody wants their place to be the one that goes bad, right? I kind of feel like this is a little bit like the first grade teacher. And I, I grew up, my parents became teachers as I, as I got older. But I often look back at my, like, first grade experience too. And, and I'm, I'm not sure if my first grade teacher saw any potential or hope for me, right? Like, I think my first grade teacher probably thought I was a wreck because I, I got in a lot of trouble in first grade. And, you know, <laughs> I was a, it was boring because they're teaching you how to read. And when you can read already, it's like, what do you do? You just, a little boy, you cause trouble, right? Um, it, 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 if you left my future up to my first grade teacher, my first grade teacher would have probably sent me to juvenile <laughs> detention center right out, out of first grade, right? But, but basically the system says, Maybe you didn't click with your first grade teacher. Maybe your second grade teacher will click better. Maybe you're salvageable at some point in the future. We're not going to prejudge that. So to me, I think you and I can look just the same way teachers look at first graders and say, that one's going to end up in a bad place and that one's going to be a star. Are they right every time? No. Are they probably more right than wrong? Yeah. 
but do you still have to let the game play out? In a sense, you do. And you do because you have to give everybody a shot and everybody, and you also have to acknowledge in a humble sense that you don't know. You don't know. That kid that seems like a delinquent in first grade may turn out to, to run a national nonprofit and actually string coherent sentences together. Mm-hmm. You know? Sometimes. Sometimes. So, so you, you have to give them that shot. And to me, when I look at the city, I, I, I think I would tell like a mayor, Politically, you're not going to be able to go out and write off every place. But you are going to be able to have a, co- a, a, a conversation community-wide saying, these are the things that we need to do to be successful. And I'm not going to like preordain, like, you know, you're saved, you're not. You know, What I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it up to the, the marketplace of people to respond and, and see where it goes. And here's where the city's investments will fall. The city's investments are not going to now lead development, they're going to follow success. So once we get out of this, the, the profitable division, the rest of the city, we're going to support success. And so if things are happening in your neighborhood, we're going to support that. We're not going to support it with huge investments. We're going to support it with modest investments. But our, our approach will now not be to determine winners and losers, but to watch things unfold and support the, the successful places. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because I'm, I'm, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a viable social way. And I don't think there's a really good reason to either go out and say, look, your neighborhood is just not like this place sucks. And I realize the places are brand, you know, five year old homes, but seriously, look at this foyer, you know, <laughs> like, you know, are, really you, you, you know, this, this, mm-hmm. this building has no similar. It's just ugly, right? <laughs> you know, we, you and I can do that. And I was certainly, there's a lot of neighborhoods I would never buy into because mm-hmm. I just like, this has no future. But I think as a, as a city, as a collective group of people making these difficult decisions, I think you have to allow the chance that you're wrong and that other people will figure out responses that, that you don't necessarily know. Now, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So essentially we're going to say like, it's going to have to be self-selection that if you're going to, if you're going to, if your neighbor is going to be saved, it's going to be saved because you and your neighbors, you know, get together and are working hard to make sure that yeah. your neighborhood can be saved. Yeah. Um, it's funny because that it, it, I, I'm, I know there's people listening right now who think, um, you know, that that sounds like almost like a collectivist kind of thing. That's a very conservative principle. Uh, a, a more like. Um, I would say uh, true like American liberal principle today would be to go out, do like a deep analysis, uh, set up trends and projections and figure out what neighborhoods are going to fail and what aren't and then make some draconian decision that you live and you die and this is, you know, the, the, the way the system works. And I, I really do think that at the local level there's a communal response. You know, we're, we're all going to work together to figure this out. Uh, but then there's also a market and I would call market markets are ecosystems. I think there's an ecosystem response where you're saying we're not going to plan by committee what the elephant will look like. We're going to let evolution over time take care of that mm-hmm. because it will come up with a, a a messier process, but a better response. Now, uh, one of the issues that most places have is that they, they've got this current pattern of development deeply baked in to 
their system. It's, it's, they have staff dedicated to, you know, turning that, the wheels of the machine. They have, uh, their ordinances and codes and everything are all, uh, intended to, uh, ensure that the current pattern goes smoothly and that nothing else is allowed to happen. So, so we have like all these different layers of issues. So on a technical level, you've got the mayor on the line and he's saying like, what do we, uh, okay, so, so what, how are we going to let this happen? Like, how do we make this happen? It seems like there's a, a number of technical things that they're likely to have to sort of uh, change or address. Yeah. Uh, wh- what's your maybe like, you know, quick hit list of like, basically every town is is going to have to do X, Y, and Z, or most towns are going to have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, let, let me put it this way, because, you know, you and I have both delved deep into coding mm-hmm. at, at times in our life. Mm-hmm. And there, there was a time in my life, I will acknowledge, it was thankfully a while back where I, I thought you could save the world with <laughs> when good, I was young and zone. foolish when I was young and foolish <laughs> I mean you know I went through this period of time as an engineer where I thought I could engineer a better world right mm-hmm. and then I realized how that was like stupid that was and then I thought okay well I can save the world through good zoning right if I just have the right zoning code the, the world will be great and there's a lot of people here at the CNU who you know if we just have the right architecture if we just have you mm-hmm. know this is folly, right? This is just silly. I'm firmly convinced that it's, it is all of these things that we look at as obstacles today, uh, the, the zoning codes, the fire code manual, the building code, the, um, the, the financial system favoring one you know, system over the other, the tax incentives, from, all these things are obstacles, yes. And I'm glad that people are pushing to remove those obstacles and, and fix them. But I think that socially, if we just as a society said, this is stupid, we're not going to do this anymore, we're going to do this other program, all those things would clear out of the way. Mm-hmm. And, and let me just, as a staff, if I'm, if I'm the mayor of the city or if I'm advising the mayor, I say, here's the program that we have now as an elected body. And you said we have a strong mayor, but I'm assuming my council and every you know the elected officials are on board with this program. Oh yeah, sure. I'm assuming that the public is on board with this program because you the gave public, a really good chat. They yeah, all showed up. They all showed up. They're, they're all super buy into convinced. It. <laughs> they're scared. They don't know where this is going to end up, but they're but you know they're they're mm-hmm. they're on board. If my staff is not on board, if my staff doesn't get up every day and say, "How do I clear the obstacles for this vision?" Mm-hmm. I fire them. They're gone. They, they, they are. I cannot allow my city to be taken down by the inertia of a bureaucracy. Right? I have very low tolerance for staff members who work in a silo and a hierarchy and defend their turf and don't really understand or respect a, 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 a bigger picture or a nuance. They, they don't have the humility to get how they fit into this larger system. Now, if this is a small town we're talking about, the, the whole staff might be, you know, the two whole, people. You know what? And the whole staff might go then. And the consultants we're using now might go. And I, I, I don't lose sleep over that. That, yeah. that, to me, that is like, okay, I've got, the, I've got the division in my company that's profitable. I've got the struggling division that I'm trying to resuscitate. I've got the division that I'm laying... I've got the division that I'm like laying off everybody and closing... Those are the painful decisions, right? Mm-hmm. The decision to fire my secretary who's, uh, who, who, you know, who refuses to help 
you know, get me to the, you know, keep, keep my schedule on tap and, and like won't return phone calls and won't do the things like, like the job is, right? They have their own agenda. I don't lose any sleep over that. Yeah, sure. Right? Like that, that that's your job. This is their house. This is their livelihood. This is their family. This is their dreams. This is their, you know, their invest. That's painful to me. So it's a little bit crazy, but it sounds like you're saying, uh, um, you know, in in many of these towns, it may be that they'd be better off without any professional help in figuring these things out. Just just if you if the, if the only available way for you to clear the obstacles is to sort oh. of fire all the professionals right. and just figure it out on your own. Well, that, I, that I, might actually be a viable strategy. <laughs> I, I, I think. I, I, okay, let me let me put it this way: if you said your your options are fire all these professionals that are standing your way and telling you why you can't do all this uh-huh. stuff that is obviously obviously logical you have to do you're better off without them you're better off just screwing it up on your own and figuring it out right but what i would say it would be the optimum is to actually find staff that were with your program mm-hmm. right like let's get people who are with the program are there enough people out there no no yeah. the staff are horrible today yeah. but, but but the thing is is that like we're going to we're going We've got like a minute left. Matthias is next. Matthias is not a planner. I would hire him as my planner, right? Because he like cares. <laughs> he cares about places, and he's working at it, and he's learning, and he's getting better. Well, you know? it's just, he's so good looking. He can win he's over a, all the people he a, has to deliver you know, bad news. A, yeah. Too bad we. You know, this for is, for listeners at home, he's sitting is, like two feet from. Yeah. Us. Too bad this is radio, <laughs> and not uh, not video. But you know, to me, um, I I I think that there's a uh, as staff people, we're horrible today. I mean, yeah. staff is a huge problem, but it's a symptom of the system, right? And I guess what I'm saying is these people all want jobs. They'll all get with the program as the program changes. Yeah. The, the, they're not, it's not like staff is a religion, yeah. right? Like I can't, like I will martyr myself before I will build a 16 foot wide roadway. Yeah. Right? Like, no. Okay. It's interesting. If there I is have something to, do it, to I will. be said. There is something to be said for the professional bureaucrat who is able to basically not care, you know, like, or not have a deep not care is probably the wrong way to describe it, but not have a deep, immovable conviction that, like, this is the way things must be, but able to say, like, okay, I'm willing to take the policy from above and run with it as though I deeply believed it to be true because those are my instructions. Right. And, like, I'm willing to be the faithful steward and carry them out even if I don't uh, always agree or I don't always, you know, well, I don't always I, feel like it's the right decision, but I understand, like, somebody has to just, you know, buckle down and I, I've thought about carry out the orders. And maybe this is this is a good way to to close. I, I I've, I've thought about wh- what would I, I, I have do. One more good question. For oh, you. do you? Okay. Yeah, that, that I've got I've got the closer set up for you. Okay. Well, let me <laughs> let me let me. I've, I've thought about what would happen if I were ever asked to run the Minnesota Department of Transportation. Uh-huh, yeah. I spent time like thinking about like what would I do. Mm-hmm. The very first thing that I would do is I would ask every department and division to identify the people who were just didn't fit in the the people who always like had this stupid idea and the people who like didn't like to go to the meetings that you were doing and the people who like weren't with the program and i would take all of them and i would put them in a room and i would say all right give me your ideas <laughs> like you know and, and i would take there would be a period of time where you would be like okay some of these people are just you know, I was going to say, they're just screw ups, right? They, they shouldn't be here. Malcontent. But a lot of them are people who like, I, this system 
stinks and I'm, I'm like rebelling against it. And I, I want those people because those are the people who can fix it, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the people who don't fit in are the ones who can fix it. So to me, if I'm looking at a city government, I don't necessarily want people who will carry out the orders. I want people who have the flexibility of mind to think differently and the, you know, the humility to kind of work with others across different yeah. platforms. So I, I don't want people who are subservient. I actually want the opposite. I want people who are free-thinking, confident. Well, and those and, are going to be your leaders. Yeah. and That's who you need. And, and going to inform me as the mayor mm-hmm. of, okay, here's the direction I want to go in. And they're like, ah, you know, this is an obstacle, this is an obstacle, but let me try to clear those obstacles and let's see what the next one is. Well, let's, let's close on this note to, to bring this back, I okay. think, to most, the most personal level. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to change it, it, your point of imagination now and uh, say that you are now living in a home in one of these places that looks marginally viable and it's not clear whether or not you and your neighbors can do enough over the next, you know, five to ten years uh, to, to keep it on the map. Right. And oh, I mean, geez. I think having having been to, to your home in your neighborhood. Yeah, I, I think I might be one. Yeah. You might be in that situation. Yeah. Uh, so what do you what do you do putting yourself in that in those shoes? Uh, what, what is your rational response to my neighborhood might be doomed? You know, what um, am I going to do about it? Okay. Well, the, the rational response for the person in that neighborhood, uh, is to move, right? Um, you sell and you move. And obviously that is sometimes easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain level of affluence there, but from the city's perspective, right? Uh, you selling and moving doesn't change the fact that there's someone in that house, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't actually like fix anything. But if, if I'm living in this neighborhood, I'm, I'm, if I'm looking at my neighborhood as not viable, I'm getting, I'm getting out. I'm moving. Um, for most Americans today, that means you're moving, right? The, the, the big problem with that is that there aren't enough places for people to, to move to. So we, we have, to me, the next generation is going to be this big shakeout of us actually building a ton of new stuff as we kind of walk away and abandon and salvage a lot of old stuff. And it's crazy to think of that because why would you, you know, if I, if, if I have a, a good house here, why would I let that one go bad while I'm building a new house here? Well, we've done that before, right? We did mm-hmm. that in the 40s and 50s uh, and 60s. Um, but the reason you would do is because this one over here is not is is not viable. It the the systems that you need to maintain it there in terms of your ability to get to work, to get to a job, to get your kids to school, all those things are going to be stressed to the point where that's not going to function. And even if the house itself physically stands, the whole lifestyle that accompanies that is not is is not going to work because the systems of support for it are adapting to something else. Yeah. And so to me, I, I think the, it, it, this is the challenge we face is that people with affluence will make the logical decision and move. And to me, the biggest challenge we face is as more affluence people leave, what is either replacing or staying is people of far less affluence. Mm-hmm. And by affluence, I simply mean the ability to use your financial capacities to explore other options. Well, you have a, you also almost certainly have a tipping point where yeah. a lot of people are trying to move out of the neighborhood. How many people really are going to be willing to move in? And also, I mean, you, there's almost an ethical conundrum there. Like if you understand 
that your neighborhood is just not going to make it. Do Dude, you feel okay? Yeah. Can you sleep at night after you sold your house off right. to the greater fool? Hey, you Matthias, know? you want to buy my house? Yeah. You know, like, right. <laughs> yeah. You so know, that's a problem. It's, it's a huge problem. And, and so problem. from, from, from two different directions, you end up with people who may wait too long or right. whatever. Right. And they just don't have a yeah. great option. If, in if front you, of them. if you knew what was coming with Enron, right? Mm-hmm. Would you have sold when it was $20 a share? Or would you have been sitting there when it's $200 a share going, I know this sucker's going down, but man, I've just 10 times my money and I'm going to hang on a little bit longer. You know, I, I, the, 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 there becomes like a weird, the, the book, um, the, the Michael Lewis book uh, about the housing crisis, the big short, mm-hmm. this was the problem the guys had at the end. They, they knew the housing market was going to implode. They, they, they saw the data. They read the prospectuses. They, they knew the way these mortgage-backed securities were wired to blow up. The problem was twofold. Could they wait long enough for it to happen? Because the whole world didn't believe them. And they had these huge bets that were, like, that were going to pay off massively. But you had to keep them in place even though you were like bleeding money every year a little mm-hmm. bit. Could you hold on long enough to see it happen? And then when it happened... You were planning on people who you knew were going to fail to pay you, <laughs> right? Like, I've got insurance on your house blowing up, but you're going to be paying me that insurance policy after your house blows up. <laughs> so, so is, you know, is that a good bet? And that was the, like, the game of chicken that became like the drama of that book, right? Like, I, I, I mean, I knew you were going to fail, but I was also counting on, you being able to pay me the insurance policy after you failed. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that here. We got to get Matthias on. Yeah. Chuck, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Hey, thank you. You, you get to close it out. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, and just keep doing what you can to build strong towns. one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.